Hello, welcome to Focal Point for Thursday the 29th of May 2008. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hi Chris, how are you going? I'm well, thanks Gihan, how are you? I'm happy, I'm happy. We're going to be talking about an interesting topic today, so all about online music, which is something that you've had decades of experience with. Um, and um, we just thought we'd just share some of the things that have been happening over the last 20 years or so, and particularly the last few years, with online music and um, the way that you can use it. Sounds good. I remember that you've always been a big fan of music, Chris. I, I remember at your 21st birthday, in fact, I think one of my gifts to you was a Billy Joel CD, and I was a big fan of Billy Joel, and I had all of his CDs, actually all of his music, on LPs, uh, so the the long playing records, which are like those big black CDs for those people who are too young to remember what they were, That's and right. I remember giving you uh, a CD with Billy Joel, and it was one of the first CDs that came out. Um, at the time, CDs were a fairly new thing, and that was 20 years ago, but and I remember even at the time, you were a big music fan. That's right, Gihan. So I've been collecting CDs ever since that CD you gave me uh, way back when, decades ago, as you just pointed out. Um, yeah, and the internet has played a big part in um, in buying, selling and trading CDs with people around the world. Well, I know that you've been involved in this in a, in a number of ways, partly as a consumer, but partly as a provider of services as well. And I'd just like to go back to that time, Chris, when you were when you were offering this, um, at the time, just quite a revolutionary and uh, quite a revolutionary website that allowed pe- people to participate in, in sharing music. That's right, and if we even rewind a little bit further to give some background, Gihan, when, when I first started um, using the internet to, to buy, sell and trade CDs, it was um, by joining a mailing list called the Used Music Mailing List. Some guy had set this up and subscribers were emailed just a list of not just CDs, but um, those black CDs, those vinyl black CDs as well as you refer to them, vinyl records and cassettes and posters and CDs that people wanted to um, buy or sell or trade. And so um, I was I was using that quite avidly, trading CDs with people around the world. But then um, that eventually uh, just finished for, for whatever reason, the person running it uh, stopped doing that. Can I just ask at the time, how, would, how is the trading working? Like how would people pay for it? How did, they, how did those transactions work? Because it, it sounds like, a, like an early version of something like eBay. It, that's exactly right. It was a mailing list based version of something like eBay. And uh, to give you an idea of just how young the, the internet was in, in those days, was that basically the way you got in contact with someone was that the list contained the email address of the person who had uh, the, the recording for sale. So whereas these days you'd be very reticent to disclose your, uh, your email address to a mailing list to, to, be, pub- to be published online, um, back then, you know, it wasn't it wasn't such a problem. And so you'd see you contact that person by email, and uh, then you would. Um, I, what I used to do is I used to send them a check, and then they would send me the CD, and it was as simple as that. Right. So you you were trading mostly with people in Australia. No, it was um, mainly people in the US. It was a US-based list, and the US, of course, had the the greatest proportion of um, people on the internet back then. And so. Um, yeah, it was mainly people in the U.S., and so I would send U.S. checks. Uh, I had a friend, our friend Gordon, had a U.S. Uh, bank, 
and I would uh, write checks based on his um, using his uh, his checkbook and uh, pay him in Aussie dollars. Right. Okay. So that was, I guess, the, the web was younger and a, a nicer time when people would kind of trust. There was there's quite a lot of trust involved in that, and people would respect that. Yep, that's right. And I, I traded for a long time in that fashion, and I think there was only one instance um, in in several hundred, uh, sorry, a few hundred transactions where a CD that I paid for didn't arrive. And I think that that was a genuine lost-in-the-mail case. I don't think that someone tried to rip me off. So, yeah, it was, it was pre-web days. It was um, all based on email and people, you know, and it was just based on sending checks to people. There was no pay- PayPal. There was no World Wide Web. And that's how I started off uh, buying and trading CDs online. Okay, so at that time, you were purely a user of the system. You were just one of the many thousands of people who were using that list. That's exactly right. And what happened after that? Well, then, as I said, the, the list um, ended, and along came the World Wide Web. And so I decided to set up a website that would um, offer the same kind of service. That was a, a website called Used Music Web, and it was running on one of the university servers. All um, I was a, a postdoc in those days, and, and all um, post or staff members had a an account on one of the university servers so I set up this website used MusicWeb and people could come along and they could list CDs that they wanted to um, sell or trade and then people who were interested in buying would visit the website they would then uh, contact the person who was listing a particular CD they were interested in and again it was it was back in those um, trustworthy days when putting someone's email address on a website wasn't considered a risky thing to do and then the transaction could take place. This was a site where actually people could interact with the site so how automated was it Chris? Was it something that required a lot of your work to maintain or was it something that generally the users managed by themselves? No, it took a bit of a bit of work on my part so people I think uh, the way that the information was received and this is going back a while it was late 90s I think uh, they would email me the things that they had to um, list on the site and then I think it was they, they sent me it in a pre-formatted way and then I added it to a file and then a, a, a job ran on the server that built the web pages um, that contained the listings. So I had to do a little bit of um, manual work in order to, uh, to get the data into, onto the server. Because people really didn't have the tools. I mean, it was simple for them to just send you an email uh, and but the work that you did was just simply to upload, the, in effect, upload the email to the web server. That's right, in effect, yep. Because I'm, I'm thinking now that this is 10 years ago and uh, now it's kind of commonplace that people have these web 2.0 sites like Facebook or Shelfari. Shelfari is an example where you can upload your whole book collection to the site and other people can have a look and have discussions with you and interact with you. But at the time, 10 years ago, that was a that's the time when I was running my web design business when I just started. And most websites at the time were simply people putting up brochures, information about themselves. It was very much one way. It was the owner of the website publishing information and other people could read it and consume it but couldn't really interact with the website very much. And here was yeah. a website that you created that had a lot of interactivity in it. Um, so it was re- very much a community site as well because I'm sure there would have been regular users who would be constantly uploading new um, new listings and uh, scanning and buying from different people and there would be people who would be regular users of the site. That's right, Gihan, and, and as a result it became a bit um, a bit of a burden to 
to run the, the website to keep uploading that information um, all the time. And so after I left the university and, and my wife and I went to, to work in the UK, upon our return I sort of I built a, a new version of the website called offloadonline.com and that was more automated. Um, uh, it, it also served as an exercise to develop some web uh, programming skills. Uh, and in, in that case, people, rather than emailing me the list of things that they wanted to, to sell, there was a, a form on the web where they could um, enter that information and then it would automatically end up in the database that, um, that, ran, that ran on the server. So that took okay. out a lot of the, a lot of the um, manual work that I was previously doing with the old used music website um, and automated it. Right, so it actually made your life a lot easier while still providing the same service. Actually, a better service because people that's right, yes. stuff and it's instantly there. Yes. So I'm curious, Chris, how many people did you have using the site? Because I remember when we talked about it years ago, it was quite a popular site. That's a good question. Um, it was. I can't really remember now. It was of the order of a few hundred different mm. different users. Mm -hmm. That was yeah, our people selling stuff, and in terms of visitors, the visit. The number of individual visitors was several thousand hits a day, which I don't know um, how many individual uh, users that might have been, but it got quite a bit of traffic as well. Yeah, I remember that, and I remember you also had, I know you did this mainly as a service for the Internet community, but you did have some ways of making money from the site as well, didn't you? That's right. So um, I would provide affiliate links to... Um, to other retailers of online music. So uh, the idea there being that if someone came along looking for a particular uh, recording that they were interested in and not being able to find it on um, offloadonline.com, then they'd be um, inclined to click on a link to Amazon or one of the first ones they used was a, a retailer called CD Now, who I think were eventually acquired by Amazon, yeah. and then another website called Gem the global electronic music marketplace, which was another version of offloadonline.com, only much bigger and better. Yeah. And so is there, is there any equivalent of that now? I know you've stopped, you've stopped the offloadonline.com site. Is there anything similar that's available now? Yeah, GEM is still in existence. Um, they, GEM started even before used music web, I think, was, was in existence and is still going strong to, this very day and it was really one of the reasons that um, I sort of ended up not not developing offloadonline.com because most um, a lot of the people who were using my website eventually moved on to GEM. Right and I guess uh, I mentioned eBay earlier it was like an early version of eBay except there wasn't an auction system so it was like if you go to eBay you've got to buy it now whether you can buy things for a fixed price and also of course eBay is much bigger than, uh, than just music that's right, and, and eBay, in fact, is where I do most of my um, hunting around for, for music these days. Oh, really? So you still do that? So you still buy a lot of second-hand music online? But yeah, I do. Yes, I certainly okay. do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what do you learn from that experience, Chris? It must have been quite interesting being there in the, pretty much the early days of the web, creating a community site, and now seeing that that's what's taken over the web. Um, what did I learn? That's a good question. <laughs> I learned uh, some web uh, web programming skills, obviously. Um, I had a lot of fun and uh, corresponded with a lot of interesting people. Um, it, it was a good exercise. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would. Um, not sure how I would do it 
in future, I think I would get someone else to do it. I might go to a site like elance.com and um, get someone else to do the actual programming and development if I was going to do website development in future. I, I, I would agree with you. I'd recommend it that way as well because I think one of the other things that's changed is that the volume of users has, changed, has increased so much that if you were to build a site like Offload Online and make it generally available to the public and free, as, as is the way you did it, you'd get so many users that you'd have to take into account things like having multiple servers and backup servers. and It, it wouldn't be as simple as just running a single user account on some, on some web host. I think yes, I think you're right. If if the site was as was as successful as you described, then yeah, you would need that kind of redundancy and being able to handle large volumes of traffic. In fact, I just read a story in the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of days ago, Chris. You might have seen this. There's there's a guy in Sydney who's using some of the Web 2.0 tools, particularly Google Maps, to show where empty houses are, because he he reads all these reports in the newspaper saying there's a housing shortage and no one can find houses. And he says practically every street he goes down, there's an empty house. So he set up a map of Sydney where people who find empty houses can go and list them on the site. And uh, it's kind of like a Wikipedia-type site where they can list... Um, they can, people who find it can update the listings. And uh, a day after it was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald, the site crashed because there was so much traffic simply from, and this wasn't a worldwide site, but simply from the people who read about it in the newspaper. And he was running it as an account on the web host, and the web host eventually had to close down the account because they said it's slowing down everybody else's um, usage on their server. And um, even a small, I mean, the Sydney Morning Herald's got a, got a wide circulation, but even something relatively small, nowadays when it gets a little bit of publicity can actually bring down servers very quickly right yes i did have a similar experience with offloadonline.com whereby i was using a, a shared web host so as well as my offloadonline.com there were various other users with um, server websites running on the same server as me and um, i was contacted by the system administrator saying that um, my site was chewing up a lot of the database and uh, cpu usage could i please do something about it but in my case it wasn't due to um, uh, high traffic it was due to poor programming skills on my part <laughs> but i remember you said the time that you shifted to one of those virtual servers where you could run it all by yourself that was um what they uh, said if i didn't tidy up the problem that i would need to move to a dedicated server, as you've described it, and um, that would be a um, far more expensive proposition. So yes, okay. I solved uh, the problem. Yeah, uh, that's right. And I can imagine that some of the sites that, that are doing this now, they just take that as part of the cost of doing business because presumably they, they make a lot more money from advertising um, to make it covered, to allow them to cover their costs. That's right. Um, so let's let's just switch tack for a moment, Chris, because we talked we talked about what you did with online music and that, that great service that you provided. But as I said at the start, you're also a big consumer and a user of music, and I guess you're still buying a lot of CDs, but you're also buying music online. That's right. Well, uh, do you mean downloadable music, Gihana, or do you mean CDs? Yes, yes, downloadable. Well, that's something I'm not actually doing uh, at this stage. I haven't. Um made the leap from downloadable um, music, sorry, from CDs to downloadable music. And one of the reasons for that is that much of um, music that you can buy from, say, iTunes or other 
um, download, downloadable music stores, a lot of those tracks have what's called um, DRM on them, so that's digital rights management. And that's a, a means by which the fashion in which you can use the, uh, the downloaded music is controlled by these, these DRM mechanisms. And I find that um, that's a bit of an encumbrance. It makes it uh, difficult and clumsy to use uh, that music. It's much uh, easier and freer to simply um, buy a CD and then uh, rip the tracks off the CD to MP3s or some other uh, audio format and then listen to those and then you don't have to work around the various issues with DRM. Right, so I guess um, we talked about DRM briefly in, in past podcasts, but I guess what you're saying is that if you, if you buy an, a track that's been protected with this DRM, it means that you, can, you can't copy it to other places. That's right, Gihan. There are various restrictions in the way that you can, get, you can do that, essentially copy it to a, um, uh, a portable audio player or burn it to a blank um, CD or copy it to another machine and play it on a different piece of, um, a, a different media player. So yeah, you, you are restricted in the way that you can use it and becomes, it just becomes um, a nuisance. And so I've avoided um, buying downloadable music uh, up, up to this point. Yeah, and I guess, I guess the record companies, their argument is that somebody could pay once, buy the music and then share it with all their friends. But of course, it makes it inconvenient for people who want to use, who want to buy it and just use it themselves. Because I know for myself, if I buy a piece of music, I probably want to put it on my iPod straight away. If my car didn't have an iPod connector, it does. But if it didn't, I'd probably want to burn it on a CD so I could then play it in the, in my car CD player. If I want to play it in one of my presentations, and I've got a license to play music in presentations, then I probably want to burn it on the CD as well, just so I have it available as a backup in case something goes wrong with my PC or I'm not taking my PC with me. I'll put it on a memory stick so that I can play it in a, in a conference venue where they, they run all their own equipment. And so it just becomes inconvenient if I can only download it and use it in one place. That's right. And um, so as you point out, it really restricts you who, uh, you know, you're a good person. You don't, uh, you don't want to put it on a, 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 um, a file-sharing network. So you have to jump through all these hoops in order to use the music legally if you want to do all those sorts of things. Um, whereas the people who are intent on um, reaching copyright and, and, and sharing files illegally, the DRM mechanisms can be fairly easily defeated and so it's not really um, a disincentive to them. Uh, it just gets in the way of legal music users. Mm, mm. And I think you said that, that that is likely to be changing soon. It is. I think the, the record companies are starting to realise that um, the people most affected by DRM are actually their, their legal customers. And so uh, places like iTunes and Amazon are starting to offer downloadable music that doesn't have um, DRM attached to it. So it's just MP3 files and once you've downloaded them, um, you're free to use them however you like, just in, in the manner you've described. Download them to your iPod burn them to a, a CD if you need to listen to it in your car or, or whatever. Um, but at the moment, for example, the Amazon MP3 store, uh, where they have DRM free music, downloadable music, is only available to US customers. Um, so hopefully that'll, that'll change and um, there'll be more retailers uh, 
who offer DRM free music to Australian customers and once that happens I'll be I'll be queuing up so to speak yeah great because uh, that's one of the that's part of the flexibility of being able to order online is that you don't have to buy a whole album you can buy a track and um, you know if you did end up buying the whole album you'd probably play, pay a little bit more if you bought each track in turn but there would be people who just buy the individual tracks so the record companies actually do make money by making music available online and making it convenient for their customers to be able to listen to it in the way that they choose Yes, you're right, Gihan, and, and the, the, I think there's a bit of a goldmine for the for the record companies um, to, to, to be experienced here, the kind of long tail effect that we've mentioned previously. So, for example, I've got a fairly complete um, record collection, but every now and then an artist has released an obscure track. Maybe it was a B-side to a single, or maybe it was on a various artist compilation, and, you know... It, if I'm particularly keen on that artist, I might be you know, hunting around for that individual track and I don't want to have to buy a, a various artist compilation. I don't want to have to go and buy a CD single that you know, is going to cost me quite a lot to, um, to have shipped to me. It would be great if I could uh, go to some, someone like Amazon and just find that individual track and uh, pay 99 cents or whatever for it and um, complete my collection. I'm sure there are a lot of completists out there who are going to be digging around in the long tail of, uh, of uh, artists' back catalogues. And um, I think a, a lot of money could be made by the record companies if they do free up access to their downloadable music catalogues. It's, it's a shift in attitude, isn't it? Because I remember when downloadable music first became available, the record companies went out of their way to talk about how much money they're going to be losing, how much it's costing them. They started um, taking legal action, not only against sharing sites like Napster, but they would actually start prosecuting individuals. So there were stories in the media of grandmothers sitting in their home who were being prosecuted by big record companies because they were they had some illegal music. And now it seems they're shifting the other way and saying, actually, maybe there is some of that going on, but there's also this, as you say, a goldmine of opportunity here, and we should really be embracing it and taking advantage of it. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm sure there's more than just me who are waiting around for uh, a whole lot of DRM-free music catalogues to be made available uh, for download. Um, so, yeah, get on with it. <laughs> yes. So what do you think the future holds, Chris, for online music? Well, yeah, this is, this is interesting. And um, by coincidence, there was something on the Slashdot um, website yesterday about... Um, one of the big record companies proposing that rather than um, downloading music and sort of owning a track, uh, an individual MP3 file, let's say, um, that you pay to listen to tracks. So, for instance, my entire um, um, CD collection, which I've ripped um, to um, audio files, takes up about 60 gigabytes, which um, you know, I could get onto one iPod, for instance. I could have my entire record collection there, my music collection there. But I'm wondering if in the future we won't even have, we won't even have those files ourselves if we've got um, available, if, if we've got access to um, broadband from, from wireless um, um, hotspots anywhere, anytime, then it might be possible just to download the tracks you want to, not download, but stream the tracks that you want to listen to straight from a server that you subscribe to. And it seems that some of the record companies are starting to think about that sort of thing. Rather than owning music, 
just streaming it to you as a, as a subscriber or, or pay-per-listen sort of um, proposition. Interesting. So that's the same concept as a video store where instead of buying the video or the DVD and paying $20 for it or $30 for it, you can go and rent it overnight for $5 and then you return it and you never have access to it again, but you can if you want to get it again, pay another $5 and, and watch it again. And you're saying the same thing might happen with music, which is interesting because it seems to me that people listen to music over and over and over again, whereas generally they don't tend to watch a DVD uh, more than a couple of times. Yeah, I think that might be possible. You know, once uh, they've digitised all this content, all this, uh, all these albums and, and uh, back catalogues, whether that sort of paper listen or maybe just subscribe to uh, a catalogue um, and just listen to as many tracks any time that you want to might be uh, might be possible once um, we've got ubiquitous broadband access. Yeah, that's an interesting future speculation about what's going to happen, and I wonder whether it's going to end up, whether the whether that works or not is going to be based on the technology, as you said, whether we have broadband access, or whether it's just going to be based on the social principles around people renting music rather than owning it. Mm. Yeah. So that's good. That's an interesting thing, and we can look forward to that in the future. Just one last question. You said that your whole music collection is 60 gigabytes. Which, which sounds like a lot, and I remember a couple of years ago when you buy a computer, it would come with about 60 gigabytes of memory, whereas now, as you said, you could copy that into, and like on my iPod, it's an 80 gigabyte iPod, so you could copy it to an iPod. You can easily buy external hard disks now, which are for less than $100, you can buy a 60 gigabyte hard disk. Um, so you can have your whole music collection in one place, handy, you can carry it around with you for less than 100 bucks. Which is really interesting. That's, yeah, that's right. That that's um, that's one of those technological advances that you were just uh, alluding to. That's made that sort of thing possible. And I'm wondering if the next step is going to be the fact that we might be able to have what's called the pervasive web, where you can have broadband anywhere, anytime, and uh, as such, then you can start streaming media to uh, a, a, like a, a network-enabled media player, whether it's music or videos or or DVD or films. Right, so even that, that DRM issue goes away because if you want to, you don't have to burn the, the track onto a CD or an iPod anywhere else because wherever you are, if you're in your car, your car can be streaming the, the, the music straight, straight into your car stereo system. It doesn't have to be on a CD that you insert. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, that's an interesting future to look forward to. Exciting times ahead, Gihan. Yes. Well, thank you again. Um, very interesting conversation, Chris, from a veteran on online music, and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in a couple of weeks' time. No worries, Kihan. Good to talk. Thanks. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A.com. Subscribe to the podcast listen to all our past issues or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.